Well, so, uh, we just want to say thank you to Olivia and Xander for leading us in worship and lifting up the name of the Lord and um, uh, just such sweet and beautiful music unto the Lord. And uh, we were, uh, I was so blessed by that and hope you all were too. We are beginning tonight in 2 Kings chapter 10. If you've been traveling with us, then you know that we're tracing the line of the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom uh, of the Jews was Israel in the north, ten tribes went to the north, and two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. It started after Solomon in 931 B.C. when Jeroboam split and went to the north, Israel, and established uh, two worship centers there in Bethel and Dan, Dan with golden calves, and also in uh, the southern kingdom after Solomon's reign, Rehoboam split off and went to the south. And now we're tracing through the book of Kings, the Israel kings and the kings of Judah. And uh, we now uh, find ourselves uh, in chapter 10 of uh, uh, Second Kings. We're at 841 BC, so we've uh, come almost a hundred years now since the first kings. There was this really uh, uh, evil king named Ahab, and he had a wife named Jezebel. And we are smack dab in the middle of uh, Second Kings, in which we're talking about and dealing with their evil reign uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. What you need to know is that. During this time, there were two prophets, men of God, Elijah, which you may have heard of before, and Elisha, the one that Elijah trained up, and after he went up into heaven or was caught up into heaven, uh, Elisha took the mantle of Elijah's ministry and prophecy and moved on with it. Some of the things that you'd need to know, in 1 Kings 21, verses 20 through 29, Elijah would prophesy that the line of King Ahab and Jezebel in the north, because they were so evil and because they were devoted to Baal worships, um, uh, worship of different god. This prophecy said, Elijah prophesied, that uh, each and every descendant of Ahab would be slain. And this mission, this uh, uh, was given over to a king called Jehu, who was a commander of an army who succeeded Ahab a few kings later. There was Ahab, Ahaziah, Joram, and then Jehu. Jehu served from 841 B.C. to 814 B.C. I know that's a lot of history, but you won't understand this chapter if you don't know that verse. Now, Ahab's line and evil ways and worshiping of other gods uh, uh, brought destruction to his, um, his, his line. And s- what happened was that this uh, uh, transferred over even to, into Judah. And how did that happen? Because there was a king named Jehoram in Judah, and he married Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. And this led to Baal worship in Judah also. Uh, which uh, stained then the whole house of Israel. And even uh, we know that Jesus would come from the Davidic line that came through Judah. So it was beginning to stain even uh, David's line. Now, we know this from the last chapter, that this king, Jehu, one from the north, Israel, 
had already killed a, a king of Israel named Joram. King of Israel named Joram. This is in 2 Kings chapter 9. And also the king of Judah named Ahaziah. And so here's where we begin. Uh, chapter 10, 841 BC. Read with me starting in verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying in his first letter now, Now as soon as the letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's son. Set him on his throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? So let me take you back. Verse 1. Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Jehu now is on the throne. He's a former commander of the army. And he understands that in Samaria there's a threat to his kingdom. And he's trying to solidify his throne. There are these 70 sons of Ahab that remain. And he's been charged with eliminating the descendants of Ahab. So he uh, does this. He writes and sends letters to Samaria to these elders and to these rulers that are in the area of Jezreel. And that letter says, hey, pick your best and brightest, your best warrior, your best one, and put him uh, up and we'll fight. Kind of like the David and Goliath scenario where David represented, or Goliath represented an army, David represented an army, and they came out. And the winner of that would then uh, be the winner for all of the army. And that's what's happening here. And they were exceedingly afraid, though, because this king had already took it, taken out two kings, Joram and Ahaziah. And they know uh, that word has gotten around, and they know that uh, this Jehu doesn't mess around. He's a great warrior and a great uh, general, and he's uh, good at war. So, in verse 5 of chapter 10, He who was in charge of the house and he who was in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons, sent to Jehu, saying, Hey, hold on, they say. We're your servants. We'll do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. In other words, we're not putting up that one person uh, because we know uh, what you're like and you're a great warrior. So we're surrendering. No need for a fight. We're, we're surrendering and do what is good in your sight. So Jehu writes a second letter, verse 6. Then he wrote a second letter to them saying, If you were for me and will obey my voice... Take the heads of the men, your master's son, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now, that's an interesting word there, heads. It's the word rosh in the Hebrew. And for some, it can mean, might mean, a chief or a leader, like the head of a state or head of state or the head of the department or something like that. But these boys took it, these elders took it very literal because listen to what happened at the end of verse 6 and on into 7. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and then uh, sent them to him at Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told him, saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. 
And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Why did he do that? Well, of course, I think he's trying to uh, establish his authority, scare them a little bit. But he's also saying, hey, listen, the prophecy is being fulfilled. I was charged with getting rid of the house of Ahab. And now look, here are 70 heads in baskets. And he goes out in the morning, verse 9. He goes out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous, don't worry. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him, probably talking about Joram, which we uh, talked about earlier, who he uh, killed and then came into reign himself in the northern kingdom of Israel. Know now, uh, or excuse me, but who killed all of these? Who killed all of these? Kind of implied like... Uh, God killed all of these in the sense that uh, he charged me with going out to do it. So hold on. I'm not as bad as you think, Jehu is saying. I did this at the direction of God. Now know now, verse 10, that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah, and if you turn back to 1 Kings 19 in verses 16 and 17, 1 Kings 19 in verses 16 and 17, initially, you see, Elijah was told by the Lord uh, that you, or he was to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. That came to pass. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel. That came to pass because the mantle was... Um, Uh, given to him as a prophet in Elijah's place. Also, Haziel, up there in verse uh, 15, was anointed king over Syria. That's another thing we talked about last week, that God is in control even of uh, all, all the nations, or of all the nations, not just Israel. Well, also, uh, you see, uh, in 1 Kings 21, 21 and 22, go there, 1 Kings 21, 21 and 22, we see this. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bound or bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin." In other words, because of their uh, evil ways, and especially the way in which they served other gods, uh, Baal, and uh, the evil that was done, and the, uh, the sexual uh, undertones to all of this, uh, God was provoked to anger. And so, when we see uh, verse 10, we see that not one word of the uh, Lord should fall to the earth. God's word always comes to pass. This was spoken through his servant Elijah. It was probably 17 or 18 years prior. That's a long time. And yet the Lord, through his word, got done what he said would get done. Look in verse 11. So a Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. And here's where maybe it might be that Jehu goes too far. Here's what he says. And all his great men, go back to verse 11, killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his close acquaintances, and his priests, 
until he left none remaining. This is getting maybe a little carried away. And it might be uh, the reason that, uh, uh, or it might be an explanation for a biblical quote-unquote difficulty. In Hosea 1.4, it says, I will avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. And so uh, many say, well, wait a minute. Didn't God tell Jehu to take out the house of Ahab? Yes, he did. We just read the prophecies. And yet here, Jehu probably, uh, because he wanted uh, to establish his throne even more and more, took a commandment of God or a word of God and used it for his own purposes to solidify his uh, kingdom even more. He goes and he not only kills the house of Ahab, but he takes out great men, close acquaintances, and priests, which the prophecy never said. And thus, even though Jehu did uh, do uh, good things, and we'll see uh, some of these good things coming up, he also overreached. And in Hosea 1.4, God said he would avenge this blood of Jezreel because this happened in the valley of Jezreel. Get it? Well, going on, look what else uh, happens here. Jehu then, in verse 12, it says this, And he rose and departed and went to Samaria. He's been in Jezreel. Now he's moving to Samaria, which is this main city in the northern kingdom. And he wants to start to uh, solidify, he wants to solidify his kingdom even more and more. He's claiming his throne. He's making himself stronger. And this is a fascinating uh, uh, few verses. On the way at Beth Elked of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Ahaziah, king of Judah. He was killed back in chapter 9, verse 27 uh, through 29. This one, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Je uh, Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We're the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. In other words, these uh, uh, relatives uh, of uh, King Ahaziah, they don't know that King Ahaziah has been killed by Jehu. And in fact, they don't know that uh, Queen Jezebel met her end also in chapter 9. They don't know it. And he said, take them alive. They took them alive and they killed them at the well of Be uh, Beth Eked, 42 men, and he left none of them. And the question becomes, was this justified or was it not justified? You see, this is not a blood relative, or these aren't blood relatives of Ahab. Why? Why not? Because Ahaziah, king of Judah, had married into Ahab's family. His wife was from Ahab's family. So the brothers of Ahaziah are not related to the family of Ahab. They're actually from the line of David or in the Davidic line, in the line uh, of uh, Judah. You get that? And so, again, this is more overreaching, more overreaching. 
When David was faced uh, as king with some of these things where uh, God had asked him to go and uh, fight against uh, other armies, etc., he did so. But when it came to unjustified killings, David showed restraint, a man after God's own heart. Here, Jehu has been asked to uh, take out the line of Ahab, and yet because of something in his heart, mixed motives, uh, 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 an ambition to solidify his kingdom, he overreaches, and we see it in two places here. Well, how about this in verse 15? Now, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. You could uh, look at uh, of this guy or uh, see this guy in Jeremiah 35, or at least the Rechabites. They were a group of nomadic people who had kind of denounced the materialism of society and went out into the desert like nomads to live uh, a godly life. And so <laughs> Jehu, he wants to get with this Jehonadab of Rechab because it lends some credence kind of as his second in charge to his ministry. And it looks as if he's religious and doing great religious things. Well, Jehonadab answers, or excuse me, uh, Rahab comes to meet him in verse 15 and he greets him and says to him, is your heart right as my heart is towards your heart? That's what Jehu says. Hey, are you on my side, in other words? And Jehonadab answered, it is. And Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up to him into the chariot. And then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Now, that's important. Circle that in your Bible, verse 16 of chapter 10. Jehu, this one, says, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Another one like this, Elijah had kind of said the same thing back in 1 Kings. We'll explore that in a minute. So they had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So in other words, look here. There are some Things uh, in which uh, um, Jehu is being obedient to the, to the word of the Lord and the commands of the Lord. And then there's these places we're, we're seeing them up and down the, these scriptures in which he sort of overreaches and does things that are more motivated for selfish ambitions. Here, though, it says that he uh, uh, did according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And so uh, we see uh, that's a good thing that he did. But how about in verse 18? He keeps going. Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. He's luring these priests and worshipers of Baal. He's going to try and, or not try, he's going to wipe them out. And so he's being somewhat deceptive. He gathers all the people and says to them, Hey, Ahab served them a little. I'm going to serve them much. Now, therefore, call to me, verse 19, all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live, but Jehu acted deceptively. Now, here, living on this side of the cross in the New Testament, we can see places like Romans 3.8, 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 3, in which we're uh, called not to be deceptive. 
Here's one thing that we must do as Christians living on this side of the cross. The Bible calls us to live a transparent life. What is repentance? Repentance is agreeing with God. God already knows we're sinners. Repentance is agreeing, yes, God, I am a sinner, and I'm turning from my ways of my old life and moving towards you, Lord, and therefore evermore living in a state of repentance or transparency with the Lord. And that's some of the trouble that Jehu is getting in here. Although he is a religious guy and tries to do uh, and uh, the things that the Lord is calling to him to, we'll see here in a minute, he never comes into relationship with the Lord, which doesn't lead to transparency, an open life, an open book before the Lord. Here he is uh, very um, uh, deceptive in how he's going to uh, get these uh, people these Baal worshipers, uh, to uh, come in and, so that he can set a trap for them. By the way, uh, Deuteronomy 13 uh, does say that idol worshipers uh, uh, received capital punishment but, or could receive capital punishment. But w- wouldn't there be uh, some attempt, you would think, in order to uh, witness to these folks or to, to talk to them about the uh, true and living God? Whatever. He didn't go that route. He's going the route of Deuteronomy 13, but he's doing it in a deceptive way. And Jehu says, verse 20, proclaim a, solemn as- proclaim a solemn assembly before Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who didn't come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal uh, was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out these vestments for them. Then Jehu, verse 23, and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, and now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside, and had said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Now it happened, verse 25, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offerings, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and kill them, let no one come out. And so we see here that Jehu, in a deceptive way, has set a trap for the worshipers of Baal. And now, in verses 25, 26, etc., he's closing the trap. Go in and kill them, don't let any come out. And they, verse, or continuing in verse 27, and they killed uh, them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw him out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. And then they broke down the sacred pillars of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. And that's a very strong word. That's like a toilet area. He made it a refuse dump. Well, catch this. He broke down this sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple. In 1 Kings 16.32, this is what Ahab and Jezebel built 
this temple uh, to this God. And so the Lord, through Jehu, uh, brought this down and made it a refuse dump. Thus, Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. This was unique among the other kings of the northern tribe of Israel. Not many had achieved this. Now we know what's so bad about this. If you go back to Exodus 20, if you go back to Exodus 20, a very uh, popular chapter, God spoke all these words, verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. You're going to know this. You learned these as little children (laughs) in Sunday school. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Here, you shall have no other gods before me. You are to have no idols. You are to have no other gods before me. The Bible calls God a jealous God. Of course, God is jealous. Not in the bad way, but in the fantastic good way. i got to say, I personally don't want my wife dating other guys. I'm jealous for her in that way, and that's a good thing. Now, what we associate with jealousy is the bad stuff that we see on the news, but our God is jealous for us. He wants us to come to him and to serve him only, and so he gives us these commandments. He says, I'm the Lord your God. You have no other gods before me. And what else? Verse 4 of chapter 20, Exodus. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You won't bow down or you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." And you can go on right there and read the rest of them. But right now, as we turn back to 2 Kings, the Lord is expressing his displeasure for the people of Israel who are still part of the covenant people, even though the kingdom's been divided. And he's saying now, I don't want you to worship any other gods. Jehu then goes in and does this and destroys Baal from Israel, a unique position among the other kings of Israel. They didn't achieve such things. They didn't, many of them didn't even care about these things. And if the chapter ended here, we'd have some great news about Jehu, but it doesn't end here. We'd have some glowing reports about Jehu, but it doesn't end here. Verse 29 of chapter 10 of 2 Kings. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Who was Jeroboam? He was the first king of the northern kingdom. This Jeroboam was the son of Nabat, and it tells you what he did right here that was so awful. He made, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. In the northern area of uh, Israel, when the kingdom split, Instead of uh, the Jewish families coming back to Jerusalem for the feasts, this king said, out of convenience, hey, let's not travel all that way back there by foot and take the family. Let's set up some worship centers so it'll be much more convenient to worship up here. And what else did he do? He set up golden calves. 
golden calves. God said, don't make any images of me. And he said, don't worship other gods. And this mixes these sorts of things. And the Lord's uh, displeased with this. And so in verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And that's in fact what happened? For the next hundred years or so, Jehu's uh, sons would then still rule over Israel, but it was cut out after that. God's prophecy comes to fruition. Listen to this, though, in verse 31. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord of God of Israel with all his heart. Why? For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So what in the world, what can we take? What is it that we can take from the life of Jehu? Sometimes, I think one of the things we can take is sometimes we can take, uh, or we can do religious things, quote-unquote, for the Lord, but we can do them without having really any sort of real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We can be zealous for the Lord and even use our zealousness, catch this, to cover up sins. We have to watch where our loyalties and affections lie. You say to yourself, well, Tim, you, you just read Exodus 20, some old book in the Old Testament about God's commandments, and you read me uh, uh, some things about uh, not having any other gods before me. But see, here's the thing. We can have uh, all kinds of idols in our life, and I dare say that Americans do have all kinds of idols in our, uh, our lives. What, what do I mean? Anything that has our affections more than God, well, that's an idol. And it can even be politics or music or hobbies or work or relationships or our, yeah, our, our wives or our kids even more than God. And the Bible tells us that the best and greatest and safest and most wonderful and beautiful place to be is right under the uh, shadow of the wings of the Lord. It's to be so close to Him, to be connected to Him. It's been an important thing uh, throughout the gospel, or excuse me, throughout the Bible, is that God would just get all of our hearts. In Deuteronomy, he said, um, uh, to love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus actually said, when was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus himself said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. So we can even look back and kind of take a survey all throughout the Bible of this heart uh, uh, or hearts uh, of people in the Bible that were devoted to the Lord. Let's look at it. He, let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. There's this fantastic little story in Exodus chapter 33. 
You're going to love it. Uh, one of uh, the favorite characters, or one of my favorite characters, and probably yours too, the Bible, is Joshua. Joshua, he's the great warrior. He actually takes over for Moses. He actually leads the people of Israel into the promised land. He, uh, Moses trained him up. And in Exodus 33, there's this great little story. Uh, there's great little scripture. The, the Israelites have been commanded to leave Sinai. So Moses, in chapter or verse 7 of chapter 33, he goes and takes an extra tent and kind of puts it outside the camp so that he can meet with the Lord. And we read it, he says in verse 7, Moses takes his tent, pitches it outside the camp, far from the camp, calls it the tabernacle of meeting, and it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone in there. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud, what is that? The presence of the Lord descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of of cloud standing at the tabernacle door. What is that? The presence of the Lord. And all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, as much as a man speaks to his friend, and he, or as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. And here's, here's this beautiful part. I think it's the key to Joshua's life. Here's this fantastic warrior, busy guy, uh, has a lot going on, learning from Moses, but look what Joshua took time to do. But his servant Joshua, right there in verse 11, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. See, the key to Joshua's life is that he gave his heart to the Lord so that now he could do all the things that the Lord had called him to, and he did a lot. He had a heart that was focused and connected to the Lord. How about David? David, the king of Israel, the great king of Israel. He was called a man after God's own heart, but had some tremendous failings, murder, uh, adultery, other things. But here is where we see, at least one place where we see in the Old Testament, David's heart in Psalm 27, verse 4, Psalm 27 Verse 4, David says this, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I, uh, will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? Why would David do this? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He found that the greatest and best place to be was to be seeking out the beauty of the Lord in his holiness, in his temple, in his arena. How about this, even closer to what we're studying now? This man of God named Elisha, we talked about this earlier, who said his zeal was also strong for the Lord, just kind of like Jehu does. In chapter 19 of 1 Kings, Elijah gets really scared because King Ahab's wife Jezebel finds out that he's executed prophets of Baal, and she chases after him. So he gets kind of scared. Uh, I love the Bible. It's very real. And here it says that he runs for her, from her, and he gets to a mountain, verse 11. And this is a very famous verse. In verse 11, it says, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind, but after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, listen to this, a still 
small voice. What was it that Elijah, even in his greatness as a prophet, needed to learn, especially in times of fear and some melancholy in his life, running from Jezebel? What did he learn to do and with, even with the earthquakes and the, the lightning and the shaking and all of that up on a high mountain? What did he learn to do in the midst of it all? Hear the still, small voice of God. What is God calling us to do? Well, how about this? You know this story. In Mark uh, 10, verse 21, there's this rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Hey, man, uh, Jesus, I've done everything. I keep the law, etc. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I, I want to get you know, to God and have eternal life. What, what do I need to do? And in 21, Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus looked at him, loved him, it says, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross, listen to this, and follow me. Come to me. Come with me. Be with me. This isn't a, 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 a time when Jesus was telling us that we always had to sell off our possessions. But here, this rich young ruler held out of his possessions as an idol in his heart. And Jesus said, get rid of it. Why? To follow him and to be in communion with him. There's another story in the New Testament that many of us know and are great with respect to uh, how we are to have a heart for God all in for God. And Jesus uh, talked to his friends, Martha and Mary, in Luke 10, 41 and 42. He says this, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. We know that story and that Martha was working and doing stuff for the Lord. Mary was sitting at his feet and relating to him. And Jesus said, this Mary has it. There's one thing needed, one. And Mary has chosen it to relate to me, to give her heart to me, to commune with me, Jesus said. How about this in John 9, uh, verse 25? There was a man born blind that was healed by Jesus. And he answered and said, uh, the blind man did, to pe when he, uh, people when he was asked how this happened, he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know, speaking of Jesus, but one thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. One thing he knew, Jesus changed his life. Now he was blind, but now he could see. The great apostle Paul in the New Testament, speaking of uh, a heart that's devoted unto the Lord, a, uh, a heart that's singularly uh, devoted to the Lord as opposed to allowing idols to come into their lives. Paul then, and I've been giving you examples. I've been trying to give you examples from the Bible. Joshua, David, Elijah, the rich young ruler, Mary and Martha, the blind man that was healed. But how about the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul? He was this really rich really intelligent, really uh, had a great social status guy, but he didn't have the Lord. And one day on the road to Damascus, the Lord just swept that out from underneath him. All his idols just shattered, and he became blind and had scales on his eyes. And Jesus spoke to him and said, who do you say that I am? And uh, Paul gave his life to Jesus Christ. Well, later in Philippians, Paul writes this. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. 
Brethren, I don't count myself to have, to have apprehended, but one thing I do, catching the theme, one thing, forgetting those things which are behind, my old life, in other words, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's whole life was one thing going towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. See, folks, what the story of Jehu teaches us is this, that sometimes people do religious things without any relationship to the Lord. And sometimes people can even be zealous for the Lord and hide their sins behind their religious zealousness. But God is calling us to something greater and purer than that. What's he calling us to? Well, you may or may not know this verse. If you don't know this verse, write this down. John 17, verse 3. What is this? You know, we think of eternal life something like this. Eternal life, okay, someday I'm going to die and then uh, maybe or hopefully go to heaven. And yet, the Bible tells us we can know that we're going to heaven. The Bible tells us that we can be assured of salvation and eternal life. And here, in John 17, verse 3, Jesus tells us what eternal life is. It's fascinating. He says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Jesus says. Do you catch what I'm trying to uh, 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 say to you here? That eternal life is knowing God as much as we can. And how do we know God? Hebrews tells us through his son, Jesus. What is, it? What is eternal life? John 17, 3. It's knowing, coming into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What eliminates Doing religious things without really having a relationship with God. Coming into a relationship with God. What eliminates a zealousness for the Lord even when we mix up our motives? It's coming into a relationship with the Lord and then being transparent with Him every morning, every night, and all the times in between about who you are and what you've done. And when there's a mistake that's made or a sin that's, uh, that you've done, you admit that before God and admit it before people. You live a transparent life. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And here in Jehu, we'll never forget it. Jehu, you can do good religious things without a real relationship with God. What's our uh, uh, takeaway as we've looked at all these different people? Is that all these people in the Bible knew that through the failings uh, that they had in their life, uh, they never stopped going back to the one who loved them. God himself through Jesus. Well, maybe some of you are out there and you're wondering, what is this guy talking about? Or how do I come into that relationship with the Lord? What is it that uh, I must do to come into a relationship with the Lord? Well, the Bible tells us this, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God's here, all of us, because of Adam and the fall, All of us are sinners, and we don't measure up to the glory or the standard of the Lord. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us in other places, there's none righteous, no, not one. None of us are righteous. We don't have the standard, God's righteousness, God's holiness, to enter into eternal life. How can a holy God save sinning people and bring them back to him? Well, the Bible says this, that God reconciles man to God through his son, Jesus Christ. In Romans, it says, God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's the message of the Bible. He came in. Uh, Hebrews says that without the remission, or excuse me, after, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sins at the cross. And so what then is our responsibility? Well, the Bible says that if we'll just confess here with our mouth, that it would be pouring out of our mouth, believing in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that he died and rose again, and that we're counting on his sacrifice for our eternal life, the Bible says, you shall be saved. Oh, my greatest and best thought of the Bible he who knew no sin became sin, Jesus, so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. I know, and so do you if you read the Bible, why everybody's going to heaven that's going to heaven. It's because we're counting on the righteousness of Christ. We're counting on his righteousness, not our own, to enter heaven. And I know why everybody, uh, uh, because I read the Bible, who's going to hell is going to hell. It's because they're going to count on their own righteousness. God will be perfectly fair, but the problem is we all fall short of the glory of God because we're sinners and we need a Savior. So I say to you tonight, if you're out there and you've never given your life to the Lord, tonight's your chance. I'm going to pray a prayer. You pray that prayer, and then if you've done that, I want you to contact the church, calvarysouthpit.com. Send us an email or call us and let us know, and we'll get you started on the path. Uh, we'll give you some materials and get you started on the path of discipleship. But you need to come into the family of God first. Read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace through faith that, that we're saved. It's, it's a gift from God. Otherwise, we would boast. But if you are a, a Christian, you've come into the family of God, you've, you're, you're in the family of God, but you know that there are idols in your life that are keeping you from a right relationship with the Lord, then I'm praying that we're going to pray here that the Lord would show you those idols and bring them low, knock them down, and then bring more of him into your life. By the way, during this pandemic, um, the Lord has stripped away many of the things that have become idols in our lives. And he's asking us here during this time, isn't he? Now that we have the time and the, uh, and the ability to, to, to draw near to him, the Bible says if we'll draw near to him, He'll draw near to us. The Bible says also that he's a rewarder of those who don't just seek him, but seek him diligently. And so during this time, I'm pleading with you. I'm begging with you. Get close to God. Now, let me pray with you. Lord, and, and if you uh, 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 have never uh, uh, surrendered your life to Christ, I'm asking now that you would surrender your life this evening. Lord, uh, 
we come together as people who know that we need you. We're sinners, Lord. We know we need a Savior. You tell us in your word that if we confess with our mouth, believe in our hearts that you died and rose again, and we count on your finished work at the cross and resurrection, Lord, we shall have eternal life. And we're asking, Lord, that you would do that in our lives, that you would come into our life and be the Lord and Savior of our life. And then by the Holy Spirit who comes to live in our lives, guide and direct us. Lord, we're giving up our life for your life. Please come in. And Lord, if uh, there's anybody else out there who's listening and uh, watching tonight who's made lots of idols in their life, they're like a Jehu. They do some religious stuff, but there's other things that are more important to them than, than you are, Lord. Lord, we're sorry for that. We're sorry that we do that. And we're praying now, Lord, that you would help us to get rid of those in our life and bring us to a place where we're, as much as we can, be devoted to you. But Lord, we're so thankful. We are so thankful that you tell us in your word, 1 John 4, that we can only love you because you first loved us. So Lord, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful and we're trusting in those promises here tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. And everybody says, amen. Well, God bless you guys. And uh, if you could contact the church and let us know uh, 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 that you've committed your life to Christ, we'd be uh, honored to hear about that. And uh, if there's anything else we can do, please be in touch. God bless you. We love you.